All right, at this time, please open your Bibles one more time to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, and we are back in our study of end times, looking forward over the next few weeks to just building upon this. We're coming to a conclusion, but one subject we're going to talk about is the rapture. I'm looking for a special study on that either next week or the week after, and then after that, we are going to talk about the importance of Israel And then I think one very important issue is the issue of dealing with the um, dealing with the doctrine of um, understanding the the seventy weeks, and those are a couple issues that we'll have. And then we'll get into our Satan study, our angel study, and talk about that as well. But if you are in Revelation chapter twenty-two and you are uh, in the last chapter, you know that we've been in verses six to twenty-one. Our study is working through these verses, but also tying it into other end time matters as we have been working through it. But the whole concept here is, if you look at your sermon notes, these are final words about Revelation. And we, we have said that these are final words where various speakers, whether it's been John or an angel or Jesus himself, have been trying to say, listen, like look at verse 6. And he said to me, this is the angel speaking to John. The me is John, the he is the angel. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And then verse 7, Jesus, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And we have said that there's like an appeal going on. Please listen to this. Please put it into your life. Please apply. You know, there's all the different charts and all the different diagrams about, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, on-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, right? Whether there's a millennium. When is Jesus coming back? When does God's wrath start? How does all this play out? I get that. I understand. I've been trying to show you the simplified versions and understand how everything plays out. But one of the key elements is that through it all is you just better be ready for the end. Whether the end comes in your death or the end comes with Jesus actually returning, you need to be born again. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that if you believe upon him, you will be saved. If you believe God transforms you, you become born again. Jesus himself said in John 3, 3, unless a man is born again, he doesn't go into the kingdom of God. And that is why I want to continue to make that appeal. Make sure that you know that. Make sure that your family, your friends know that. Because unless a person is born again, they don't go in. And turn back to John chapter 3. I just think it's appropriate for us on this day in light of our progression through... um, the, the, the very end, it's to remember what's at the heart of what we're striving for at the, end, at the end is the gospel, okay? And perhaps the greatest verse in the Bible, one that everybody knows, even many unbelievers know, although not everybody, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I know many of you have it memorized. Many of you know it like the back of your hand. But I thought appropriate on Valentine's Day not to take a departure from our end studies, but to talk a little bit about love as a preface to our study. And it's important that we 
Remember, that word there, love, is the Greek word agape love. It's the love of action. God loved the world. And on this day, we must remember God's love is the love that he wants all of us to have as well. We read that in 1 John chapter 4, um, that God wants us to love. And there's two aspects about love that I think are critical for us to always remember. Number one, God's love is far different, far different than the way we typically as humans think about love. Today is Valentine's Day, and everyone's talking about who they're in love with and what, you know, the, the, the person they're in love with. And typically in the world, it's I love the most beautiful person. I love the person that is the prettiest. And it's the, we carry it off. I love this house. I love this car. I love the, this thing that has got great beauty. But if you look at John 3.16, it's in the context when you go down to Verse 19, this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and men, what do they love? They love darkness and rather than the light, for their deeds are, were evil. Well, the reality of it is, is God knows all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. John, God knows there's none righteous, none who you know, seek after God, Romans chapter 3. God, put it this way, God loves the ugly, <laughs> you know, and, and this is so important for us to remember this, because when I start to get this, there's, I, I believe that God loves me, and God knows everything about me that is horrific. He knows the secrets, the things that you will never know about me, and God knows all the secrets about you that no one else will ever know. The thoughts that you get away with and the things that you have done that perhaps you've done in secret. And yet, God loved us. God loved us. And we know that that's God the Father. And he sent Jesus, who we would say also loved us. And he died on the cross for us. And when we grasp that reality, I think my understanding, my comprehensions, my application for Valentine's becomes great because I start to think, well, if God is love, as I read in 1 John chapter 4, and I recognize how he's calling me to love the world, he wants me to love in the same manner, at times to love the ugly, to love people that are maybe are offensive and everything inside me wants to walk away from them. But God calls me to love. And, and, and I think on Valentine's Day, it's really very, very, very important because I think I bring that into my home and it's the way I want my home to operate because not everyone in my home is always perfect. And, and obviously then bring that into my church and bring it into my relationships and my family. So John 3.16 carries a lot of theological richness and deepness for me. Because I recognize, I, I read John 3, 16, God loved the world. For God loved the world. As for God so loved the world, I know that. But it's the idea, he loved the ugly. And, and how am I loving like him? And then I, I think how important it is for me to remember that, that uh, on this day, when I look at life, I told the kids on uh, um, the retreat yesterday that I think when I was younger, when I was in high school <laughs> and junior, junior high, high school, and into my early 20s, Valentine's Day was always the worst day. <laughs> Guys never dating anybody. Was, like back then, I was always like short and like goofy. And then like, like look at me now. I'm just <laughs> it's like come, so come out of that. And 
tall, handsome. I was even, Paul always reads the comics. I think there was a comic this morning about making the perfect guy. And the very first thing it said, we'll make him tall. It, I don't, you'll see it, Paul, if you read the comics. I think, come on, why does everybody have to be tall? Um, you know, be tall and handsome, whatever. But, you know, when, when you look at Valentine's Day and you look at people like, oh, you know, you, and you struggle with it on a day like today, um, and, you, and, and you remember those times for us who are married now, and, um, but, but the, the loneliness and the separation you felt, part of the, the, well, the reason we feel that is because sin separates people from people. And sin makes us, you know, ha- not have loving people in our lives. And, and, you know, this is what, in a church, we're trying to break that down. We're always trying to be there for other people. But the reality is sometimes you feel alone. And it's legitimate. You are alone because, in some sense, you are isolated. Sin separates us from people. And I th- thought of this illustration too late. But maybe I use it with another youth conference. But, you know, the ideal thing would be is that if we grew up in perfect families and everything that our parents ever said and did for us was absolutely perfect and we felt perfect love. And then when we were 13 years old, there was a knock on the door and our future spouse came. <laughs> and 13 years old and, and, and we talked and we said, oh, you like movies? I like movies. You like walks on the beach? I like walks on the beach. Oh, <laughs> you like going to restaurants? I like going to restaurants. Let's, let's, let's get married when we're 16. And, <laughs> and then we just walk off and we talk for the next three years, never have premarital sex. And then when we're 16 years old, we wait perfectly for one another. And then we just go blissfully until we're like 99 years old. And then we just turn to each other and say, well, this is the day we die. And we both die to, you know, hours apart and we never have any separation we never have any problems because that's perfect love well it doesn't work that way but i tell you in some ways you know when god created mankind he wanted love to be always there and never have anybody feel separated and everybody feel alone and i think one of the great things about where we're going in eternity is that love will be perfect think about that Think about what God is waiting for us to have. So you turn, turn to John, I mean, Revelation 22, and understand, you know, when we talk about the gospel, I don't think it's wrong for us to present to people, you know, what sin has done. You know, you, yeah, you're a sinner, and, but you can tell people the, what sin has brought to their lives because I think everybody feels that quiet cry of desperation and that quiet, you know, the pain of being alone. I'm curious if anyone ever would come to me and say, boy, pastor, I have no idea what you're talking about. Everywhere, every, every phase of my life, I've always felt perfect love. Never been alone. I think, wow. You know? So I recognize that sin has come into our world and justifiably and sometimes unjustifiably, we're, we're all alone. But God is bringing everything to, back to where he wanted it. Perfect, perfect harmony. And, and so as we come to... Revelation chapter 22, you know, we've worked through this. We're down in the last section, chapter um, 22, verses 12 to 20, about 20a. It's all Jesus. And just, we, 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 we were in chapter 12, I mean, chapter 22, verse 12, over the last two weeks. Look at verse 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. 
And like I said, everything, if you have a red-letter Bible, should be red-lettered from 12 to 20. This is all Jesus speaking, and he's trying to get people to understand, I'm coming back. I am coming back. I'm going to pay back everyone for how they lived. How have you loved? And, you know, it should put fear in you. If you're somebody that likes to hold grudges and you're not someone who's doing the right thing, you should understand there are paybacks. God is not going to let you get away with anything. And last week we talked about the horrific images of Jesus Christ coming back. I don't know if any of you went back and studied Isaiah chapter 63. The reality of Jesus is the one that's going to kill all the unbelievers. The blood is going to be all over his garment. It's, it is horrific because God is against sinners and he's against unrighteousness. You can say he's against uh, acts of, of, of unloving uh, evil, okay? So Jesus is going to render to every man according to what he's done. Now we come to verse 13, and Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now the beginning and the end is a, a quote from God from back in Isaiah. The Alpha and Omega, he's used that at, at the beginning of the Revelation and the end. All three of these are statements that convey one thing. That, that Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the Greek alphabet, the end of the Greek alphabet. He's like, what's that? Well, I'm the beginning and the end. This is, there's, there's several ramifications here. This is like, I am the start of history. I am the end of history. But I, I think it's even on top of that, when he says, look in verse 13, I am the first and the last. I always like this imagery. When you think about the aspect of who God is, he is the first God and he's the last God. So if God got in line, he'd be the only person in line. He's the first person in line. He's the last person in line. And what he is saying here is, you've got to listen to me. There, there's no other authority that's going to step in and supersede what I've said. If I have said that the end is coming and blessed are those who heed my gospel, blessed are those who listen to me, blessed are those who put this into practice, you better understand. And when I talk about the fact that my reward is coming and in essence the judgment and the seal, the trumpet, the bull judgments are coming, you have got to understand they are literal. They are going to come. And, and, and so I am the first and last, the beginning and the end. I'm the authority. There's no one that's going like, to come back and say, pull the rug out from under everything I've said and say, look, this was all just a big bunch of hooey. This is something you really, really need to pay attention to that detailed. I, I think when we see people whisked off into hell, you think, oh my goodness, God, if, you know, if we were to see that image, we'd say, oh my, I can't believe this is so serious. I should have been running around and being more bold with the gospel and more zealous with everything. I, I think when Jesus is saying, like up in verse 7, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book, it's like, please listen to me. It's like a parent, and I don't know if every other parent does this, is like, look, you, you got a math test, you got a history test, please study. You know, this is something for my life. Study, please study. If you don't study, you don't do well. And, and, and you try to get your kids to be ready. Well, as a church, I'm trying to get you to be ready. The exam is coming. The end is coming. The lines of demarcation are going to be made. And Jesus is saying, I am Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And as we go on and you look in verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now, this is picking up, again, Old Testament imagery from Zechariah chapter 3, 
um, Isaiah chapter 64, that sin is pictured as dirty and that we need clean garments. And this was back in, I think, also in Revelation, in one of the, the evaluations in, I think, chapter 3. And so I'm not going to go back there, and we're not going to hit all this guy, because another verse I want to show you in a second. But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who wash their robes. Now remember, I said that this is a book filled with beatitudes. Beatitudes are blessings. Just like there are beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. The book of Revelation has seven beatitudes. This is the final one. And so verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. In essence, he's saying, blessed are those who are saved. Blessed are those who have had the spiritual cleansing and, and God has given them new clothes. You bring up the imagery of Matthew chapter 22, the wedding feast. You got the right clothes. Blessed are those who have their, wa- their robes washed and you know, cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the, they may have the right to the tree of life. And I think that's fascinating. And I truly believe this is a literal tree. And I just want to take you to two verses. The first one's back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. And I don't know if you have often thought about this, but I think about this a lot. Ultimately, Adam and Eve weren't kicked out of the Garden of Eden because, just technically, just because they sinned. They got kicked out because of this. Verse 21, after they've sinned and God has caught them and he knows they're, Adam and Eve know they're naked and God, you know, I tend now to think that he did make the sacrifice with the animal to show them the the sacrifice for their sin um, required life. The wages of sin is death. God killed an animal. Verse 21, then the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. So the book of Genesis, chapter 3, first book of the Bible, he's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And, you know, as I, as a parent, have grown through this, this is, you know, what God wanted to protect us from. He wanted us just to know what good was, okay? But the idea of knowing good and evil, that there's choices you're going to make and temptations you're going to have. Um... So we know good and evil. And now he may stretch out his hand and do what? Also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. I believe God has set up a literal tree that, will, that imparts eternal life. Obviously, God is the one who would energize it, empower it. I believe it is, though, literal. And that is why Adam and Eve had to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So, verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to what? The tree of life. I believe that tree was there until the flood. And, and maybe, maybe, you know, the... the I haven't done enough ancient writings on, you know, but they talk about the ancient city. Uh, what's the city underwater? Um, Atlantis. That maybe Atlantis, the, there was always mysticism about this city, about this being, you know, where the Garden of Eden was, you know, because it's underwater and God put it, this tree, that it's protected, that nobody could get to it. I don't know how much of that would tie into it. 
I know there's other plots with Atlantis and everything like that. But isn't it interesting? This tree is so significant. It really doesn't get play until we come to the end. Go back now to Revelation 22, but not to the passage we were in, but to, remember I said that by the time we came to verse 6, everything is done with history. Well, let's look just in chapter 22, verse 1, as everything is being laid out to what eternal life looks like. And verse 22, verse 1 of chapter 22, so the book of Revelation. Now we jump to the end, and the tree of life hasn't gotten a big play throughout the book of the Bible, but now we come to chapter 22. So you're back in the end of the Bible, chapter 22, verse 1. Then it, as John is being showed by that angel who kicked off verse 6, as the angel is, is showing him what eternal life looks like, he, verse 1 says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of, in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. So you got the river of life and you got this tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God, and the lamb will be in it, and his bondservant will serve him. And I don't know, because we're not told specifically, do we eat from that as every month? Maybe as a celebration, as a type of service that goes on for eternity. I don't know if you also caught this, but in eternity, this is where we think there's time markings. I don't know how it's all going to play out, but if the tree, if the tree of life is bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding it every month. That means there's months going forward. Again, we talk about eternity. There's so much that's a mystery, so much that we don't know exactly that's going to be taking place, but we believe it's good, and we believe it's filled with love, and we believe it's all going to be a blessing. But I believe that's a literal tree, and I think we'll be taking part in it. And so you look, go back to verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have right the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. And this is where the main city that is now covering a, almost the size of the United States, that's almost the size of the new Jerusalem. That's why I think there's a new heavens and a new earth. There's an actual, I think there's a rebirth of the entire new earth. And it's an incredible city that is, I believe, the main focal point for what we're going to do throughout eternity. I don't know what we're going to do. I was talking to my daughter. I was driving up to the retreat, and I said, you know, sweetheart, I don't know if in heaven, you know, as we'll be friends, we'll know one another, if we'll get to do space exploration, if we'll get to go do things throughout the universe. I just know I want you there. And that's the thing where you go and you look at verse 15, okay? We're, we're, there, this new city is described, and we'll talk Maybe a little bit about that in upcoming weeks too, but look at verse 15. This is where on this day we all need to understand outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral moral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. We know that salvation is by grace through faith. That's the only way to get in. But when you truly believe, your life transforms. And God is saying outside, this is the description of people whose lives have not been transformed. You know, as the Bible talks about, this once was us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We were once people who were sinners. But when you can, if you don't get saved, your life doesn't transform. And God looks at you as somebody that, that has this character through and through. So verse 15, outside of the dogs, and the dogs aren't the cute little puppies that we all love and adore. It was a derogatory term. 
you know, they're just horrible people. You know, sometimes you just look at them, eh, just a dog, he's just a horrible person. That's how the expression is being used. The idea of sorcerers, the people who play with magic arts, you know, and could get into some of the drugs, sorcerers, and, and that kind of things, drug addicts, drug people, okay? Um, so it's a pretty broad sense where it could go from witchcraft, from some of the Harry Potter kind of stuff, to, you know, the people that are actual witches. And there are people who are actual witches. Um, just always remind you that we had people who were going door to door with our Children's Hunger Fund, and they took um, food to one family, and I think the house was all painted black here in Hammond, and it was, they, people claimed to be Satanists. When they were into sorcery, people are into this stuff. So very broad sense of this word that it has application for today. So you got the dogs, the sorcerers, immoral persons, people who are sexually immoral, people who have sex before marriage, people who have sex outside of the marriage bond, people who are into homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution, all those things, immoral persons, okay? And then people who are murderers, and the idea of they actually enact it, and then the heart comes in play too, as Jesus tells us, if you think about being a murderer, you are, okay? And idolaters, people who put who put their agenda over God's, whatever, I want this car, I want this house, I want this recognition, I want, I want, I want. This is what I'm going to honor. God knows that your life isn't right with God, and this list comes out. And lastly, he puts an everyone who loves and practices lying. And as we've seen in this world, and I've seen, sadly, too many people who are just liars. And, and so through all of this, Jesus is saying and I'll pick this up again next week, but verse 16, this is the only place in the Bible where we have Jesus say this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I, Jesus, I'm speaking. Will you listen to me? Will you accept my love? And today, to the church of Jesus Christ, I say to you, are we someone who's taking out that love? Because this is true. I can just, it's like Jesus is like begging people, Please believe, I'm coming again. This is serious. I am coming again. There's a line of demarcation. There are people who are going to be outside, and there are people who are going to be inside. There are going to be people in heaven, out of heaven, keeping it uh, out of heaven, in heaven. Please believe me. Please believe me. Do something about it. Make sure, number one, you've accepted his love, and number two, that you tell people. That's the end. The end is coming. The end is coming. Be ready for it. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that as we think through these matters, it just, it's real simple. You're just using Jesus to make sure that everybody understands that this is no game. This is so serious. Father, is there someone here today that has never accepted your love? That Valentine's Day is... something they really don't understand because they don't really understand your love. I pray, Lord, that maybe as they think about how ugly they are because of sin and they hear the words that you do love them, that finally something will melt in their heart and they'll come to faith and they'll say, you know what, I want love in my life. I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired of hiding my sin. I want to run to the light and say, God, I know that you see everything in me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for providing forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Be my Lord, be my Savior.
God, if we truly believe this as a church, I do pray that all of us remember how ugly each one of us was prior to sin, sin being forgiven in our lives. And that, Lord, that then it'll open up the door for us to be more loving to one another. For truly, God, we will have to give an account when you return for how we loved one another. You expect a high level of love in our lives. You expect us to forgive one another, knowing that we will say and do things that will offend each other and hurt one another. But we, on a far greater scale, offended you, and yet you still loved us. I'm just begging you, God, as our church thinks about end times and we continue to look forward to studying these end time passages, that we continue to remember the simple truth. We will give an account for how we live our lives and how we have loved one another to you. You are coming quickly. May our church truly be blessed because they believe it. And then may we be believe, believe it so much that we tell others. For Father, if we could stop a child from running into a road, shall we not stop an adult from running into hell? Help us, God, to be bold with the gospel. We know that when we stop the child, there's often joy from a parent or even the child that we pulled them from the road. But when we tell an adult or someone that is of age about the gospel, sometimes we hear that we've been unloving and kind or they turn and shun us. Help us to see past all that. Help us to be people that will continue to love no matter what response we get. I do pray for our church, God. May they know that as a pastor, I love them, I care for them immensely, and I pray that much fruit is born in their lives so that they experience heaven and eternity with the utmost of joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.